morning. Welcome again. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Revelation. That's the very last book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, we call the big numbers on the page chapters. The little numbers are verses. We're at Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Revelation 5. I'll read the whole thing. This is the Apostle John speaking. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, bless now this reading and the preaching of your word so that it might be clear to us what it means. As strange as these symbols and this genre of literature might be to us today, This is your holy word, and you intend to speak to us clearly by it. So we humbly ask that you would do so this morning by your grace, and in the name of Jesus, amen. About ten years ago, I read an essay about the horrifying rise in opioid overdoses, especially among the poor. A problem which, of course, has gotten much, much worse since then. Uh, I could not find this essay this week, but I remember what struck me the most about it was not so much all of these grisly, shocking details about the carnage of opioids and people overdosing on them and being addicted to them, but what struck me most was the way that this essay talked about the deeper cause of it all. That in a world increasingly bereft of healthy relationships with God and with others 
and with oneself that the opioid crisis is fundamentally a crisis of meaning. Like suicide, like depression, like anxiety, substance abuse is closely related to our struggle to answer questions about why I'm here, about where I'm headed, about what I'm for. Everywhere we look, our world is suffering the horrible consequences of living as if I can and I must be in control of my own life. The horrible consequences of living as if I can and I must create my own identity. The horrible consequences of living as if I can and I must determine my own destiny. It is a suffocating burden to live that way. Many people cannot handle it. But as we saw a couple weeks ago, in John's vision of God's heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 4, none of that is actually true. That is not how we can live. It is not how we must live. Because the self-existent creator of all things is ultimately in charge of us and of this world. And that's a good thing. John's vision of God's throne room continues today in Revelation chapter 5. But today, the focus narrows onto Jesus himself. Jesus as God's king. The one who rules over us and rules over our world. And so provides our true and fundamental identity. And our true and fundamental purpose. This broken world does have a purpose. And Jesus, according to this chapter, is the only one who can show it to us. And the only one who can carry it out. The chapter unfolds this wonderful, world-changing truth through three stages of John's vision. Grief, surprise, and praise. First, grief. In chapter 4, John had told us, about his vision of God on his throne and about the various kinds of angels gathered there to worship him. We said a couple of weeks ago uh, that the elders are probably best understood not to be people, humans, but actually a kind of angel. But now in chapter 5, we're getting something new. We're in the same scene. We're still in God's throne room, but we get something very new. At God's right side now, John says that he sees a scroll written on the front and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, it's important to understand that the Greek word for scroll is the same as the Greek word for book. Because this is simultaneously an important scroll and an important book, if we've been reading our Bibles, especially the Old Testament. The fact that it's double-sided, written on both sides, is meant to remind us of how in a vision in Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, about how he received a scroll written on front and back. And that scroll in the book of Ezekiel was filled with words about God's coming judgment on the world. But what about the seven seals? That takes a little more explanation. Of course, for thousands of years, people have used various kinds of seals to close up documents, to keep them from being opened or forged by those who have no right to do so. 
And in the near context, uh, you might have caught some of this as Amanda read from Daniel 7 for us. In the near context, John is already making great use of the book of Daniel, especially that vision that we heard earlier, the vision of God himself, the Ancient of Days, and the Messianic Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, But we didn't read today the very end of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel ends with multiple descriptions of his writings and his prophecies as a book that God says must be sealed. A book that can and will not be opened until a distant time in the future. Uh, What the book of Daniel calls the time of the end. And so... Hearing about this sealed book or this sealed scroll is not just a reference to Ezekiel. It's also a reference to Daniel. Uh, In Daniel, uh, the fact that the book has to be sealed up until the end uh, is a reference that happens in multiple visions in Daniel about how in the very end, at the end of history, as Daniel would know it, God would ultimately defeat a terrible human kingdom still far in Daniel's future. Although for us today, in retrospect, that kingdom is pretty clearly the Roman Empire. What was future for him is past for us and was present for John and for his audience. In other words, when God says at the end of the book of Daniel, this book must be sealed up until the time of the end. The ultimate vision, ultimate meaning of Daniel's visions and of Daniel's promises from God are going to remain closed and hidden and obscure until the final stage of human history as we know it. When according to Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, God's going to crush this final and great beastly kingdom. And then God's going to give his eternal kingdom to the Son of Man. And then the Son of Man is going to turn around and give this eternal kingdom to his people to rule with him forever and ever. All three of those elements were in Daniel chapter 7 that we just read a little while ago. That's the time of the end. God says, seal up your book until we hit that time. So the scroll that John is seeing, the scroll slash book that John is seeing at God's right hand is Ezekiel's double-sided scroll. It contains God's judgment on his enemies and by implication God's salvation for his people. But it's particularly Daniel's sealed book. It contains the ultimate meaning, the ultimate outcome of the battle between God's holy kingdom and humanity's evil kingdoms, especially the Roman Empire. In other words, this book covers the ultimate story and the ultimate purpose of the entire universe. The story and the purpose that we cannot manufacture or discover on our own. In verse 2, John sees a mighty angel and he's shouting in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Where can we look to find the ultimate meaning of our lives, the ultimate purpose of this world? Education, technology, science, politicians, the government, none of it can or will disclose or determine the true purpose, the true story of this world. Our wealth, our families, our pleasure, none of it can secure for us the ultimate resolution and redemption of this universe. In verse 3, John says that there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's able to open the scroll or to look into it. No human, 
Not even the mightiest angel with all of their power and all of their intelligence. None of them are able to open the book of God's plan and purpose for the universe. And so John bursts out weeping. Because the world is profoundly depressing. When we don't and can't know what its ultimate purpose is. We see that darkness and that despair everywhere around us. Whether it's directly or indirectly through all the ways that people try to numb themselves to it. And so that's the first point. The grief. The grief of a world without purpose. The grief of a world where we can't know its purpose. But now in verse 5, we shift from grief to surprise. John says that one of the angelic elders tells him to stop weeping. Behold, he says, pay attention. Pay attention, John. Pay attention, CTK, in 2024. Why shouldn't he weep over the closed book of God's purposes for us and for our world? Because, he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll. He can open its seven seals. Now this, of course, is a description of Jesus. In terms of Old Testament language about Israel's Messiah. Israel's coming and final king, according to the prophets, would be the last and the greatest descendant of King David. He would arise one day and mightily restore David's humiliating kingdom from all of its sin and all of its suffering. The angel says that he's a lion and that he's conquered. And that, of course, is the language of strength and of glory. This is the mighty ruler who's going to unfold and administer God's purposes for the end of history as Daniel and John knew it. It's the mighty ruler of God's eternal kingdom come to defeat humanity's beastly empires of pride and greed and murder. The son of David is the son of man. But there's a huge surprise. What John hears is that there's a lion. But John turns and what he sees is a lamb. He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. And it's not just any lamb. It's a slaughtered lamb. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the lamb is standing there. It's not collapsed. It's not dead. But John says he's standing as slain in the state of having been slain in the past, but still being affected by it today. He lives with the marks of sacrifice and slaughter upon him. We're immediately supposed to be thinking of the Old Testament sacrificial system with its constant offerings of lambs. But because this chapter focuses especially on the blood of the lamb and how the blood of the lamb rescues us, we're especially supposed to be thinking of the Passover lamb. God's final and most terrible plague on Egypt when he was bringing out his people Israel was killing every firstborn son in every single home unless that home had lamb's blood painted on the front door. But the surprising sacrificial weakness of the lamb does not mean that he's a loser. The lamb is still the lion. 
He's a mighty lamb. John says, I see seven horns on the lamb's head. And this is a symbol of complete authority and power. And then he says that the lamb has seven eyes, which he interprets for us as a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit by which and through which the lamb knows and sees and governs the whole world. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in our world today. As the lamb standing and slain, and as the lion, mighty and messianic, Jesus is the only one who is worthy to take up and unfold this book of God's plan of judgment and salvation for this dark and sad world. In verse 7, the lamb goes to take the scroll from God himself. And when he does this, we hear that God's angelic worshipers fall down and worship the lamb. It's an amazing depiction of Jesus' identity and dignity and worthiness as God himself. We're told that these 24 angels are holding harps, that they're singing praise to God, and that they have golden bowls full of incense, which John says are symbolic of the prayers of the saints. And it's a way of saying that the heavenly worship service, which is going on right now, that the heavenly worship service going on includes the offering of our prayers to God. The church, with all of its suffering and all of its sorrow through all of its history all over the world today, the church goes to God with its cries for judgment and for salvation. And these mighty angelic servants bring them as a pleasing aroma to God. It smells good to him. He loves to answer his people's cries. In many ways, the book of Revelation is simply a description of God's eagerness to respond to the prayers of his suffering, persecuted people. Do you pray knowing that the angels are presenting your prayers to God? That God is pleased to hear from you? That God is pleased to give you what's good for you? To do what's good for this world according to his perfect plan? What an amazing encouragement to pray more. Do you respond like these saints did in the first century? Do you respond to evil and oppression and corruption, whether it's in your own life personally or in our national life together as a people? Do you respond to all that with confident prayers for God's wrath against all of it? We should be. The book of Psalms gives us all kinds of ways to pray against evil. To pray in good, godly anger against sin and all of its effects. God graciously transforms John's grief into a kind of surprise. But now in verse 9, we shift from what he sees, especially now to what he hears. And so the vision of God's throne room, like it did in chapter 4, once again focuses us on praise. From grief to surprise to praise. Praise especially of Jesus as the lion and the lamb. In verse 9, John hears the angels singing a new song. It's new because in Christ, God has done something totally new. 
Although it's something he's planned from even before he made the whole world. God has entered into his own creation by taking on human nature in order to save and to restore humanity. And therefore, because humanity is God's greatest and highest creation, to also save and restore the entire universe. Chapter 4 focuses on the praise that God deserves merely for being himself and also that he deserves for being the world's creation, creator. But now in chapter 5, we focus on the praise that God deserves, not just for being the creator, but now also for being the redeemer. The angels sing out to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people to God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Earlier the angel told Jesus that the lion had conquered, and now we see that the way he conquered was by dying. The way he conquered was by being slaughtered. And we typically, and we rightly focus on Jesus' resurrection from death and his ascension into heaven in terms of how they show us God's victory over evil and suffering. We should do that. But we see here that we should also focus on Jesus' death as a victory over the very same evil and suffering. The crucifixion was meant to be Jesus' defeat and humiliation. It was the worst and the most grotesque form of execution that the Romans had. Uh, The politician Cicero said that the word cross should not ever appear on the lips of any civilized person. But you see here that the crucifixion, as humiliating as it was, was really and truly Jesus' greatest victory, Jesus' greatest glory. For in his death, this chapter tells us, Jesus was paying a ransom. The language here and elsewhere in the New Testament is financial language. This is economic language, often used to describe buying slaves their freedom. Jesus was redeeming us. He was making a payment to God's own justice. He was paying the penalty and the debt that we rightly owe to God. He was taking on the wrath that God rightly owes to us. Now in the Bible, blood is a catch-all term uh, as a way of saying life. Your blood is a way of saying your very life, who you are, everything that makes you who you are. And so Jesus, the God-man, pays with the most precious asset that anyone could ever offer. His own life, his blood, is infinitely valuable. As God, he's paying to God. As man, he's paying for man. The crucifixion is a ransom. And so it's a rescue. And it's a redemption. Jesus died. Just like God rescued Israel out of Egypt, Jesus died to save us from the dominion of evil and from all of its terrible consequences. Our bondage to sin, our bondage to suffering, our bondage to the devil, our bondage to death. Now, of course, it's shocking that God's messianic king would die in such a horrific and humiliating way. But because of who he was, his defeat was really his victory. 
And so he's worthy to open the scroll. He's the one who rules over the universe, who gives it its meaning and purpose and goal. Now, what is that goal? Look at verse 9 again. Verse 9 and 10 tell us that Jesus did all this to rescue and to unite a group of people from all over the earth and all through its history to make them as one into his priests and to his kingdom. This country and this state and this city have a hideous history of racial evil. But the solution to racism is not different kinds of racism. It's not obsessing over who belongs to which group and what we all owe each other, although some of us may owe some things to others of us. We live in a world that is increasingly obsessed with questions of identity, about which group you belong to, about which tribe you are, and we're becoming more and more divided. We're hating each other more and more because of it. And so in this world, here in Revelation 5, is where true unity is to be found. Jesus came and died and conquered for the church to unite people together who should not belong together, who do not normally belong together. Jesus is bringing us together. Everyone and anyone who puts their hope in him, no matter their class or their ethnicity or what they're doing in the world. Verse 10 says that Jesus made us a kingdom. And so our reign on the earth is something that's already here. Even though it's not here totally and it's not here perfectly. But these churches in the first century, just like a lot of churches around the world today and a lot of American churches today, they doubted whether God's victory was really theirs. All they could see, sometimes all we can see, is our suffering and humiliation and weakness and sin and shame. But John hears there in God's throne room that Jesus died and rose again to make us his kingdom, to make us his priests. And just like him, he was victorious in and through his suffering. Just like him, in a sense, we too are victorious in our suffering with him and for him. We are ruling. We are ruling today as God's beloved people, not least, as we saw in verse 8, not least ruling through offering our prayers for God's judgment and God's salvation from the midst of our suffering. Do you view your prayers as your exercise of kingly and priestly rule over God's creation? That's a lot of what you're doing when you're praying. That's a lot of what we're doing when we gather together on Sunday mornings to pray and to worship. We're already kings and queens. We're priests. We're victorious in and through Christ, even as we also continue to suffer, even as we also continue to face the scorn and the hatred of the world. It does not mean that Christians should never be sad. But it does mean that even when we're suffering and sorrowing, Christians should be confident with a fundamental optimism that our Captain Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb, has already won the war. It's all downhill from here. Christians can be so morose and despairing 
The next heavenly praise song that John hears tells us why. Why has Jesus already won the war? This song is sung by millions and millions of angels. What an incredible thing to imagine. Verse 12, they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so you see what it all means? Jesus, the slain but mighty Lamb, has it all. Jesus is where it's at. If you are weak, he has power. If you are poor, he has wealth. If you are ignorant, he has wisdom. He gives might to the sick, honor to the ashamed, glory to the hated, and blessing to the cursed. He walked through all of it before you and for you. And so he will see to your ultimate victory in the end. And so you, you today, just like John now here at the end of the chapter, hears from every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, just like he hears all of them doing, all of us today should join God's creation in its song of worship and praise for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lamb enjoys all the honor and all the blessing of God Himself. The Lamb rules over His own sinful creation with perfect goodness and beauty. The Lamb who is slain is the Lion who has conquered. You are victorious in and through His suffering. So take heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory of Jesus that even now is ours. We thank you that the victory of Jesus came through misery and death. And so that when we face our own misery and deaths, we can take great courage. Knowing that in going down, you are bringing us up. And that being brought low, you are exalting us up high. There is nothing you bring into our lives that you do not sustain us through with perfect wisdom, perfect strength, perfect care. Help us to know that as we look at our lives and our world and we become worried and scared that it's spinning out of your control. Give us this deep confidence in the victory of Jesus and so make us also victors to the very end. We pray in his name. Amen.